Hello and welcome to another episode of Religions, Regimes and Refugees and their Multicultural Mess and Secular Scam. Thank you very much for joining me again today. It is an absolute honor and I hope you're having a great weekend wherever you are. So uh, we're going to continue on the episode of, um, of the history of Islam. Uh, we did the history of Judaism, Christianity and we are in Islam. I said I was going to talk about Mecca. I am going to talk about it, but I decided to talk about another concept very important in uh, Islam, and then we'll go to Mecca maybe in another episode, but today itself. So we'll talk about um, some concepts that are very prominent in the news, um, but historical and ideological, and we're going to look at Islamic law how it's formed and and what are the different concepts and the misconceptions that you have out there, okay? So let's start with the Sharia. We've all heard the word Sharia, 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 Sharia law. What is Sharia? Okay, so Sharia is taken from the Jewish concept of Halakha, okay? It's absolutely Hebrew. It starts with Hebrew. From the root to behave according to the Quran, okay? So Sharia comes from halakha it just means to behave although many people think that sharia is a set of islamic laws it is not sharia is actually just a right way of life or to behave in the quran so just telling you how to behave it's the right way of life sharia is not law so don't call sharia law anymore because there's no such thing as Sharia law. Um, it's not authoritative. That means it doesn't impose on you. You're not, it doesn't say you have to, you should, you must, you, you can't. There's no such thing as has to or have to. It's not authoritative. It's wisdom that a God or Allah gave to the Muslims to lead their life. It's just wisdom. You're not obligated. There's no obligation on you. However, in order to legitimize the power of the state, the caliphs the, and the caliphs, the second caliph Omar in invented Islamic jurisprudence or commonly known as fiqh okay so you have Islamic jurisprudence that's Islamic law called the fiqh also known as the interpretation of deep or deep understanding of the Sharia so fiqh is Islamic jurisprudence and it's based on the Sharia so in order for them to legitimize their power they attach it to the Sharia or say that you're using the Sharia and then that becomes um, uh, that becomes law so they're giving themselves it's man-made the fiqh is man-made they're giving themselves the right by attaching themselves to the Quran and and saying oh this God created God said you must God doesn't say you must anything. No God says anything. No one has spoken to God. Okay? But man has legitimized his power over you. And so, um, and, and by attaching himself to some ideological hero, and that automatically becomes a law, fic, uh, God's given law. But God does not say you have to. Uh, fic, um, okay, fic also known as the interpretation or deep understanding of the Sharia. It is the Islamic version of the Jewish Talmud. So in, in Hebrews, among the Hebrews you have the Talmud, for the Muslims you have Islam, you have the Fiqh. The interpretation is also sometimes called Ijtihad, or there is Ijtihad, means independent think, reasoning. So you'll hear the word Ijtihad very often. It means independent reasoning. That means 
the mullahs and the ulamas can give fatwas and, and think by themselves. They don't have to ally with uh, God. We'll get to that why. Uh, the fiqh is man-made and supposed to be changeable and deals with rituals, morals, religion, cultural legislation. There are four schools of thought in Sunni Islam which deals with the fiqh and there are two or three in, the, in Shia Islam. The fiqh was initiated by the second Caliph Umar after coming into contact with rabbinical Jewish law. So after Umar made an alliance with the Hebrews, the people of the book at, at Medina, uh, that's when the fiqh came into um, existence. Um, and after the takeover of the Levit, once the province of Arabia, Petria. So uh, Umar was the second caliph who invented the fiqh. He comes from a tribe called, tribe called Banu Adi, which was a tribe known for its arbitration. That means any fight that happened in the region, they needed arbitrators. They, his tribe was the ones who arbitrated these things. So he was used to this jurisprudence. He was used to arbitrating. So the first thing he does when he becomes caliph, or even before he becomes caliph, he wants to he wants to rule over, he wants to be the judge and the justice at the same time. It's part of his duty, it's part of his lineage in life. It's like, like father from father to son. So he was very comfortable in making the fig. So that's how the fig came into existence. And he used Jewish, the Hebrew law. The Hebrews were known for their bed deans and, 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 the, and the Hebrew Talmud. And uh, so that's when it came into existence and after taking over the Levant, which was once the province of Arabia, Petria. Now from here, one extracts what is known as the system of is Islamic law. Islamic law is divided into two groups, two sources, ibadat, governing the, the relationship between individuals and God, and mumalat, the laws governing the relationships between individual and society, a collective body of religious life, uh, yeah, which is a collective body, it's a collective body for religious life. The sources, um, sorry, I'm going to go back to it, so ibadat, which is between God and you, and you'll have mumalat, which is the go law governing relationship, individual and society, and that society can change off and on, uh, as, as, you know, the eras go. The first primary source um, of Islamic law, so there are two sources, primary and secondary. The first primary source is the Quran, composed of 114 chapters or surahs and 6,236 ayahs or verses. It means recital. So Quran means recital. It, it is taken from the Aramaic Syriac word kirana. Okay, so... Um, Kirana is the uh, root, of, or should I say the precursor for the word Quran, which means recital. The Quran is the constitution of all Muslims um, the, and trumps in all facts of life. They are asked to replicate every detail of Muhammad's life in totality. No different from the constitution of a modern country. Now that is why we say Islam was always an empire, not a divine fate of God. So Islam was an empire, like any country today. They had a constitution, and they, the Quran is that constitution, um, which they say that it comes from God. It's like any other country that says, oh, well, you know, in God I believe, God saved the queen, God. So they have to legitimize this law, and they put God on it, and you got the Quran. The secondary, second primary source is the Sunnah. The Sunnah composed of traditions, saying, and actions, and practices, uh, and judgments of the Prophet. Okay, um, that's the Sunnah. 
Um, Sunna literally, literally means the trodden path. This trodden path, once affirmed and practiced by Muhammad, became prophetic and, div and the divine way of life and is now called the Sunna. Okay, so it's tradition, sayings, actions, and practices of the Prophet Muhammad. These practices, once written down, are individually, note, uh, individually known as the Hadith. The Hadith were written down over 200 years uh, after Muhammad passed away through testimony of generations of Arabs who came after the Prophet, or going back all the way up to Muhammad himself. Thus, the Sunnah is not the absolute authority as it's not revealed by God. It is man-made. Um, but because the Prophet is chosen by God, so it automatically becomes sort of uh, um, divine law. Now, the Sunnah is not the absolute authority as it's not revealed by God, but it's considered a divine inspiration, something like Muhammad's interpretation of what Allah would want for Muslims of the planet, and eventually the whole planet as the goal of Islam is to convert the entire planet to Islam. The third primary source is Ijma. Okay? Ijma is considered the consensus of the Muslim community or Ummah. This community is represented by self-appointed jurists or ulema. Okay? Um, since ijma is a consensus, it's not fixed and can be reformed several times. The rules of ijma, however, must be supported by Quranic verses or hadith. So they say, well, you know, you have to change. Change is constant. So you always have to change, uh, update, evolve. Um, so the ijma is considered a consensus by that generation of uh, any generation of community or Umar this time. So if you're living in the 21st century, you need laws to that represent the 21st century, not the 7th century. But these self-appointed jurists and the ulama who make up the committees of, of these of for Ijma absolutely you know, insist that it's supported by Quranic verses or Hadith. So at the end of the day, you're still, Ijma is useless because you're going back to the 7th century. If, if the Quran's written in the 7th century and you're trying to formulate rules for the, the 21st century, it's not going to work. That's why the Ijma is there for you to update, evolve, and because change is constant. But they won't do that. So it sort of becomes, a, you know, self-contradictory, so to speak. But it is the third source, primary source. So you have the Quran, which is the first source. You have the Sunnah and the Hadith, which is the second source. Uh, the third is Ijma. And the fourth, I repeat, the fourth primary source is the Qiyas. Q-I-Y-A-S, deductive analogy. So the teachings of the primary sources are sometimes compared to finding an injunction to a new circumstance that may arise that does not have a precedent. So you can deduce from, from the generations before you and the need of the R, and that's called Kias. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but it's the fourth primary source. So these are the four primary sources of Islamic war, uh, law. Now you have the secondary source, okay? The secondary source is Istihan, I-S-T-I-H-S-A-N, where the jurist can issue an injunction based on the personal opinion to circumvent a liturgy, uh, sorry, a literal or rigid, rigid uh, previous source, okay? So Ishtian, so the jurist can say, okay, well, this is the previous source. I'm issuing an injunction based on my personal opinion to circumvent a, a, a previous source because it's a need of the art. This, so that's the second, the first primary source. The second 
sorry, I repeat the first secondary source. The second secondary source is Al Masala Al Muras Mursala. I repeat Al Maslaha Al Mursala. It's tongue twisting for me, I apologize. This is a tool used by jurists to issue an injunction that would benefit an or interest the entire community, one that is not mentioned in previous sources. The third secondary source is al-ishtihab, signifying the continuity of what is established or the negation of a presumption of an event until evidence is proven to show otherwise. In other words, innocent until proven guilty. The fourth and last secondary source is urf, signifying the customs and law in place of a region. So if you have, you're in India and you have certain customs in place uh, and, and certain uh, traditions that are local to the land, you can practice it under Urf. Some some Muslims have, uh, they say, well, you know, well, we believe in Ram and we, we, we uh, respect Ram and we respect Sita and we respect the traditions of the land. That comes under urf. That means you have to respect the customs and law of a region. You cannot negate it. You cannot call them kufr. You cannot uh, uh, destroy it because one day you will be destroyed. Uh, and and that there's a legislation for that. It's called urf. It's there in the among Islamic jurisprudence. So you have four primary sources, four secondary sources. Um, and I'll repeat that ishtiyan al-maslaha al-mursala al-ishtiyab and urf. Okay, so these are the sources uh, for law in, in Islam, which is called Islamic jurisprudence or originally known as the fiqh. Most of Islamic life, however, is determined by the teachings of Allah from the Quran and the teachings and actions of Muhammad in the Sunnah, um, the trodden part of Muhammad. The Sunnah is found for two in two collections of the text, the Hadith, the actions of Muhammad, and the Sira al uh, Sira Rasul Allah. Ra, sorry, the Sira al Rasul. Okay, so the Hadith, the Sunnah is found in the Hadith, and the Sira is found. Uh, sorry, the Sunnah is found in the Hadith, and the Sunnah is found in the Sira al Rasul. So the Sira al Rasul is the biography of the Prophet or journey of the Prophet. Um, you can download it on the internet, Sirat al-Rasul, S-I-R-A-T-A-L-Rasul, um, or Sirat Rasul Allah, sometimes it's called, and of course the Hadith. Uh, since all books have gaps in their ideology, no one book can be understood independent of each other. Islamic movement uh, as a sphere is based on the Hadith. 60% of Islam, however, is based on the Hadith. Quran is only 14%. The Sira is 26%. And this I got from someone called Dr. Bill Warner uh, who, on the Islamic doctrine of women. Technically, Islam is supposed to be only the Quran. And the Quran says in chapter 5, Today I have completed your book. That means there should no other, be no other book. And people say, Oh, the Quran is the last revelation and you don't need any other book. You don't need any other book in life and history. Can you work on the Quran alone? No. But not only that, they invented the Hadith, the Sunnah, the Sirah, the blah, blah, blah. And so most of Islamic life for 14 centuries is based on the Hadith, 60, 60%, Quran 40, 14%, and Sirah 26%. So it's like musical chairs. So 
uh, that, my dear friends, is Islamic jurisprudence. Uh, people who say, uh, please stop using Sharia law. There's no such thing as Sharia law. It's Islamic jurisprudence or the fake. Um, we'll go to... Um, will go to Allah, okay? Now, we've talked about Islamic law, Islamic jurisprudence, but what about Allah? Who is Allah? Okay. Al is the definite article the, T-H-E in English, for those who speak English, the definite article the. Um, and that comes from the Romans. So basically, this region, the word Al previously was El, Okay, L as in Elohim, L as in um, L as in um, the first um, Aleph, uh, the first alphabet of the uh, Hebrew alphabet, uh, and even Arabic. L comes from um, L is it was the divine. Consider the divine. We've talked about it in a, in a podcast. L also has the symbol of the cow. The symbol of L in pre-Abrahamic times was the cow. All they did was remove the concept of the cow, the symbol of the cow, and they made they kept the, the story that L is divine. And they in, in, innovated uh, other words, alternate word, words, El, Elohim, El, Elahi, Hashem. But it came from the word L, which actually signified the cow before. Uh, the divine, um, and when the Romans came, they spoke Latin, so their Latin was Alpha, Beta, uh, A, B, C, D, that's what it is, and the L became Al, A-L, and because this region, prior to Islam coming out, coming from this region, this was colonized by the Roman Empire, so their language became intertwined with the uh, Semitic languages of the region, and the El became Al, and that Al is now Arabic. So actually, they're speaking part Roman, the Latin. That's what the, the Arabs do, but they, they don't understand that. They refuse to accept. They think Al comes from, directly from God. Uh, Arabic comes from God. It's the divine language, the perfect language. They don't understand that Al is a hybrid of Semitic languages and, um, and Latin. Uh, so Allah... The actual word is Ilah, okay, I-L-A-H. It's the cognate for Hebrew word God or deity taken over by Islam. The Hebrews since Hellenistic times use alternate words for God. Um, like I said, they were not allowed to take the name of Yahweh, which they considered as God. So some of the alternate words were El, Elohim, Eloha, Elohai, Elohai, El, El Shaddai, Adonai, Zevot. Over time, once the geopolitical alliances with the people of the book were cemented over generations, they forgot the original meaning. The Hebrew-Aramic vocabulary now became Islamic. Today, uh, it's institutionalized as Allah. So Al and Illah, I-L-A-H, although Allah can be used for the concept of God by all Arabs, including non-Muslims, in order to segregate the Muslims from their flock, their non-Muslim brethren, and cement their emotional and economic control over them, the establishment has cemented the notion that Allah is the Muslim God, which is wrong. So they keep, in order to, to, to 
colonize their minds, their emotions, their morals, and their economic. They say Allah is the Islamic God, and only Muslims can believe in that. But it's actually the Arabic word for God. So we've looked at Islamic law. We've looked at the concept of Allah, uh, and now we're going to look at the word Muslim. Okay, um, it's very important you understand. We think Muslims belong to Islam. Muslim come from the word Islam. Uh, it's wrong, completely wrong. Uh, Muslim, the word Muslim predates Islam. Okay, just in case, I hope you're taking down notes. Take a paper, take a pen. This is important. The word Muslim predates Islam. So, we have gotten used to hearing the word Muslim. What does it mean and what are its sources and origins? Technically, the, in today's world, a Muslim is someone who is a follower of the region, religion of Islam. Okay, we all know that. In reality, by definition, a Muslim is someone who is a citizen of the Islamic empires or caliphate. By professing the Shahada or observes, witnesses and testifies the Islamic oath. So if you're part of the Islamic empire, whichever the empire was, whether it was um, the Fatimids, the Umayyads, the Abbasids, the... Um, the Ottomans, the Mughals, uh, Delhi Sultanate. It's the in order for you to become part of this uh, this empire, you have to take an oath. Just very much like a country today, you go and migrate to a country, and you have to take an oath uh, to swear in and become part of the country. It's the same concept; hasn't changed. The only thing is, they refuse to admit that they were an empire. They want to admit that they are a religion. They rebranded after the empire fell. That's a religion. And now all of them, every time you want to become a Muslim or a Christian, or they take an oath. But there was no oath to convert. There was no conversion. You're just joining an empire. And unfortunately, everyone does that. So the Islamic oath was La ilaha illa 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 illa. So La ilaha Muhammadun Rasul illa. Okay, that means there is no God but God. Muhammad is his messenger. Now, these two phrases are found separately in the Quran. They're not together. There's nowhere that the oath exists in the Quran. So the two verses of the Quran, two, uh, yeah, Surah 37.35 and Surah 48.29. They are not always used together in the beginning and the second half of the phrase being added much later. The above is for the followers of Sunni Islam. Or the followers of Shia Islam, there's a third part. Wa ilahun walahiyu illa. Okay, so I'm sorry for massacring that pronunciation. I apologize. So basically, it's just saying Ali is the is the valley of God. Uh, that means Wa Aliyun. Uh, Ali is the 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 prophets. Uh, son-in-law and cousin, he was he married the prophet's daughter. So Aliyun, that means he, Ali is the Vali, Valiyu Illa. That means the Vali or the guardian of God. Um, it would have been taken from the Hebrew declaration of faith or the Shema. So like the Islamic Empire, the Hebrew kingdoms also had a declaration of uh, citizenship, okay? And that was called the Shema, S-H-E-M-A. So it's the same thing. And the Israel, Israeli or is Israelite uh, Shema was, Hear, O Israel, Lord is our God, the Lord is one. So it's the same thing. Lord is our God, the Lord is one. 
and in, in Arabic it is um, there is no God but God Lord is our God Lord is one it's the same thing they've literally taken it from the Hebrews uh, and from the from the what we call today as Jews um, the concept of Islam is submission and surrender to the will of God how thus a Muslim is a servant or a slave of God but what does Islamic literature say however I try to break it down uh, and the word Muslim to look at an alternate meaning of the root if ever there existed one so I've been through my research I was trying to to look if Muslim meant something before there was a root for it and, and it and it predated and I was not far off the prefix mu comes from the one who that means anywhere you see mu, mu uh, Muhammad uh, mu in front of a word it means it's a prefix okay it means the one who uh, like in English there's a suffix er uh, driver or learner or teacher um, similarly in in Arabic the one who it's a prefix actually um, so that's the mu in the in the Muslim the the latter the second part of the word Muslim SLM is a the word is sorry SLM in the word Muslim is said to be from the same root as in Islam where does Islam come Muslim come from it comes from Islam it's the same root SLM which produces a whole group of words from peace to submission this is only partly correct so I dug a little deeper I found the word Salah S-A-L-A-H, which in Arabic means to gather in thought or deliberation. In non-Arabic countries, we also get the word namaz. So musalla means one who gathers in open spaces, like outside a mosque or like outside a masjid, in thought and discussion, like in a courtyard. So a mosque was just a gathering place. Before Islam, there were plenty of mosques. It was a gathering place and they had a courtyard they all had courtyards and in the courtyard people would gather the one who gathers in in discussion in talk to deliberate instead of in fighting you get together uh, under a starlit sky and with with a with um, uh, with um, about you know fire firewood you're sitting around the fire um, in thought and discussion in pre-islamic times like i said the masjid was a simple place of gathering for people of the area people would gather to discuss to debate to ponder to think and to talk about the joys and injustices of society to poetry poetry was a big thing and still is a big thing when the islamic political movement took form these gathering spaces became religious mosques and people who gathered were forced to submit to blind faith by the empire as a prayer they were called people who pray or submit to Allah thus Musalla okay uh, Salah means one who gathers in in uh, open place to to think and to deliberate and Mu means a doer okay so Musalla was the uh, word where it comes from the suffix I am we see Muslim that means you have a suffix I am it's taken from Hebrew which means multiples as in plural okay therefore Musalim becomes the people plural who gathered in open spaces or gatherings places
today called masjids to deliberate and discuss. Okay, that's all they do. Someone, a, a group of people, multiples who gather in, in front of uh, uh, masjids, places to talk, to deliberate, um, and to discuss is called a Muslim. Is called Muslim. This could have become the word Muslim, a word we use today. The suffix I am also exists in Aramaic. Aramaic as a preposition, however, the meaning does not match the word in this context. This is clearly a suffix indicating a plural or common noun, Muslim, which is the plural for Musala, okay, and the female version of Muslim is Muslima, okay. So, uh, hence we have Muslim, which is masculine plural, and Muslima, which is feminine plural. And basically it means people who get together in thought, in prayer, in deliberation to discuss. And that has become institutionalized as someone who follows, the, uh, follows Islam today. There is another very important concept in the Quran, that of mumin or al-mumin, okay? It means believer, okay? Uh, someone who has a faith in Allah and his message or theology revealed in the Quran. So, everyone thinks that Muslim is a follower of God, or of, the, of Islam. It is wrong. In the 7th century and for many centuries after this, a Muslim was someone who belonged, who lived, in um, the Islamic empire. So if you were a citizen of the empire, you were Muslim. You could have been a Christian, you could have been a Hebrew, you could have been a Philistine, you could have been uh, Greek, you could have been Hindu, if you lived in the empire. It's very much like in America, you have different people of different groups, different labels, but they're all Americans. So everyone who lived in the Islamic empire, um, uh, empires were called Muslim. A Muslima, okay. However, um, a one who followed systematically only uh, the Quran was called a Mumin, okay, or plural al Muminun. Very important. In until 1923, I think the Quran, the, when the Ottoman collapsed, it was al Mumin and al al Muminun. Those were the people who followed the Quran. When the empire collapsed and they didn't have any other way to go about, they had to rebrand it. And all those people who lived in the Islamic in, in territories were then called Muslim. They kept the name, but they made the name, they rebranded the name as people who followed the faith. So they just rebranded and said, oh, no, 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 all of you follow the Quran. But in reality, their ancestors all did not follow the Quran. Only a Muminun would follow Quran. But since they have... Uh, you know they they needed to keep their flock on their bay on their slave plantation. This is where they they rebranded it and said, "Oh no, all of you are now Muslim by faith. You are not Muslim by citizenship." It's the same thing with Christianity. Christianity, all those who lived in Christian empires were Christian, but doesn't mean you follow the Bible. You could have been Jews, you could have been Hebrews, you could have been anything, but it doesn't have to be. You didn't have to be. Someone who followed the Bible. A Christian is someone who lived within the empire of Christianity. And that got diluted, rebranded over the years, and now we don't know anything whether we're coming or going. But welcome to the world of religion. So let's go back to our uh, Muminu, Al Muminun. 
The Quran, uh, chapter 5, verse 83, says, When they listen to the revelation received by the messenger, you will see their eyes flowing with tears. For they recognize the truth. They pray, Our Lord, who we have believed, uh, write us down among the witnesses. Okay? Um, and in chapter 7, verse 143, When Moses came to the place appointed by us, and his Lord spoke to him, he said, O oh my Lord, show uh, thyself to me, and may I look upon you. God by no means can see you, uh, can... God said, by no means can you see me, but look upon the amount, upon the mount. If it remains in its place, then you shall see me. But then the Lord manifested his glory on the, on the mount. He came, he made it crumble into dust, and Moses fell down in a swoon, unconscious. And when he recovered his senses, glory be to you. To you I return in repentance, and I am the first to believe. Muminun. So here you have the, the word muminun again. Um, so let's get right to it, okay? Um, Islam, like all other religions of the region, is an ideological extension of for the people of the book and the Meccan uh, geopolitical movement turned empire, okay? Um, it's a product of its time. In the ancient world, these empires would conquer land. In cases of the Islamic movement, its residing citizens of that particular conquered regions would be allowed to live as lower-class marginalized citizens or demis under the Pact of Umar. A treaty... Um, that's attributed to the second caliph Umar, who, Ibn Khattab, who started the Islamic, uh, who started who wrote down the fiqh, regulating the activities of non-Muslims. So you could be living in the empire, you could be following the Quran, which is uh, Muminun, and if not, you were just a simple Muslim who lived in the empire, but you were regulated by certain laws, okay? Uh, and the laws you were called a dhimmi, and the pact of Umar was the one who regulated you. If they took the oath of the Shahada, they became full-fledged citizens of the state. If not, they became dhimmis. Or they could be sold as slaves and become sex slaves in the case of women, besides having to pay tribute or be killed. Something that happened to Jamal Khashoggi in Turkey. To avoid this fate they awaited, that awaited them, the colonized people of the Islamic war campaigns would, would change alliances to benefit from the ruling class. That changing of alliance meant taking an oath and becoming Muslim Muminun. As ordinary citizens of this planet, we want three things in life, food, water, and security. The alliance they cited did not matter. It's very much like Muslim refugees in Europe today, converting to Christianity, to benefit and to eventually uh, get a European passport. Similarly, in ancient times, all empires did the same. In Islam, once you took the oath and changed alliances, you became a full-fledged citizen of the empire. That is exactly what happened in North Africa when they colonized. Uh, they were colonized by the Islamic color empire, empire um, invaders in the seventh century. In the beginning, they agreed to form an alliance with Islamic invading armies to avoid persecution and humiliation by the Arabs. They were able to fend off changing. They 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 made an alliance with the Arabs, the local Berber. Uh, they were able thus to 
fend off changing their culture and local practices as long as they changed alliances to the Islamic empire. Hence, they kept their Berber traditions and customs for a very long time. They finally changed it only in the 11th century. A similar fate awaited the Hindus in India, who were forcibly converted by successive Islamic invading empires, but, avoid, but allowed to keep their old culture and traditions in the beginning. It was only to gain support for their colonial cause that local Hindus were forced to change allegiance by Islamic invaders. Over time, as the local feudal chieftains of the invading Islamic empires gained control, they indoctrinated the locals with a new ideology to back up their actions with all philosophies of the Hindus, with all philosophies, and the Hindu uh, ideology was then discarded. Uh, so after he took an oath of allegiance to the empire, the Muslim is then indoctrinated with Islamic um, literature, and over time he just gives it up and blends in, forms a hybrid, and then later on becomes a full-fledged Muslim, a muminun. A Muslim who believes in the faith of God and Allah, the Quran and his revelation, is called a muminun. Okay, I'll repeat that, a Muslim who believes in the faith of God, the Quran and its revelation, is a muminun, okay, a mumin. That is, a believer in the faith, the ideology, and the message. A Muslim did not need to be a mumin, but eventually became one over time, okay? So, a Muslim absolutely did not need to be a mumin. He could just remain a Muslim, but eventually became one over time. However, all mumin, all muminun, always had to be Muslims or citizens of the empire. Someone who believed in, in, in the Quran could not live outside the empire. So, because your state had to be controlled by the uh, Islamic um, uh, theologians or ideologues or Muslim ruler. So people who, Muslims who leave their native lands and go to uh, America, migrate, um, cannot be called Muslims because or Mumin because then they lose their citizenship and they're not controlled by the pure uh, faith and practices of God. So they were not allowed to be called Mumin. Uh, they had to be on Islamic land. And that's why you have the problems with Pakistan and India because Pakistan believes that the Muslim in India are Kufar. They are not real Muslims uh, because they choose to live under non-Islamic head of state. So they're always, Pakistan is always trying through the back door to indoctrinate the mullahs and the tullahs and the imams to fight uh, against the state from the inside, bring down the state, stone pelting, uh, ghettos, violence, killing, targeted killings, so that they need to create a state within the state and finally at one time rise up to, to a, a level where they will bring down the country, the Indian country from the inside and take it over and you'll have an Islamic empire just like during the feudal colonial times. Um, as the Islamic empire eventually died out and disappeared in 1923, after all, the fall of the Ottoman Empire, the ruling class was faced with the situation of losing their flock and human capital otherwise known as slaves. Without their human capital, they were at a risk of becoming a footnote of history. Like many empires of the past, the descendants of the old feudal class then changed narrative by forming new political groups like the uh, Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and the affiliates all over the world, including South Asia, among others. 
all linked under the greater empire of Islam, uh, the original colonial empire. They were the modern-day version of the Umayyads, the Abbasids, and the Ottoman Caliphate. They also they called the Muslim the Ummah, which in modern terms uh, one would call pan-Islamicism. Okay, so you call pan-Islam. It's the same thing in in the olden days. It was called Ummah. The goal was to use a camouflage narrative to revive the empire with modern slogans. Slogans that is, Islam is a religion of peace, and now Islamophobia replacing kufr for infidel detractors. So they can't say kufr anymore; they have to say Islamophobia. They have named modern words. The mentality is the same, but the label has changed. So in the olden days, and, and behind the screens, the doors, and the mosques, in homes, they still say kufr, kufr, kufr. But outside, they cannot say kufar. So what are they going to say? They have to spit on people. So they say, oh, well, you know, uh, we are we are, we are, are saints, we're innocent, we're victims. Oh, that's Islamophobia, Islamophobia. Islamophobia is a modern way of saying kufar. That's all. So the concept of mumin was swept under the carpet. Their old concepts revitalized with new meanings and concepts of Muslim becomes one who believes in the faith of Allah and his true religion of Islam, and not a colonized citizen of the Islamic empire. As I like to say, the empire is dead, but their divine departments are open for business, so they need our human capital to resurrect their bygone empires. A toast, I say, to our Bedouin friends. Um, so that is basically a few concepts, Sharia, uh, Allah, Muslim, um, that you need to know when um, when people talk, when you have this conversation. Um, I hope you've understood a part of it or all of it. Take down notes. Um, and we will go from there. Um, I will come back to you with another episode. Makkah, uh, Deen. Um, and I want to do an entire one on... Um, the wives of Muhammad or the alleged wives on Muhammad because that is important it's what's going on in the news right now till then I take your leave thank you so much for your time thank you for for listening to the podcast please share it please discuss it understand it research it go into the internet research understand these meanings these points of view because if you don't understand these concepts it's no use having a discussion these are some of the basic concepts that you need to know in, in Islamic uh, conversations uh, and to understand history. Um, talk with five friends. Please, please have this conversation with five friends. Ask them to have it with another five friends and keep going. Have this conversation so we can offload the baggage, the ignorance from the inside. We can heal. We can reconcile. We can be better. Uh, we can learn from the junctions of the past and we can move on and, and create a better society for today. So thank you very much for your time. I hope you have a great day. Um, enjoy the weekend.